Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Film from a time when you didn't need a lot of explosions and computer graphics to make a good film. It was a powerful story, and that's really what I loved about that movie. And that scene, uh, it depicts a lot, the, the, the movie itself depicts the life of Eric Little, who was an Olympic medalist. He was a great runner, but he's also a faithful missionary to China. And uh, it tells the story, his story. But that scene depicts him, of course, getting knocked down very unfairly in a foot race, and he gets back up, and he wins. And that's, that's based on true events. And the reason that we get so inspired by that story is because we know how hard it is in that moment to do what he did. That's actually a very uncommon response to life, what we just saw on that film clip. For most of us, the truth is, when life conspires to knock us down, it's much easier to stay there. You may think that you're fighting, but really, for a lot of us, it's easier just to start spiraling into a cycle of bitterness, defeat, really wrong theories about the fairness and goodness of God, we find it easier to stay defeated than to get back up and fight. I think that's really true. It's, it's, in fact, that kind of perseverance and going for it, rising up from the ashes, it runs against the grain of human nature, I think. I mean, just think about how, if you were left to your own devices without external pressure, how would you respond most winter mornings when you're in your bed with that down comforter tucked around you and it, your bed feels like a little piece of heaven? Do you, do you know that feeling? And, and then your alarm clock is going off and it sounds like the devil's voice. And you just, what, what would you do if there was no pressure? If you could get paid just for being comfortable, wouldn't most of us stay in bed? And what do you do when life starts to kick you? When you get terrible news from the doctor? You work really hard on a paper only to get a C- minus because you think that the teacher has it in for you. You have an important relationship that really turns sour. This friendship or relationship you thought was important, this romantic relationship or something, and it just gets really weird. And the feelings you used to have for this person are hard to rekindle. It's awkward just to be in the same room. What do you find yourself doing most of the time? Let's be honest. Most of us, as much as we thump our chests and say we're tough people, we find it easier to run, to quit, to stay down. And so I think that a clip like that and the words from God's, God's word that we're going to look at today inspire us because we know that that is not who we are, but that is who we want to become. Are people like that who, when we're knocked down, get back up, that we persevere, we keep going. Now, here's the thing, though. Um, and let, let's just read the passage first, and I'll, I'll make a point. Philippians 3, verses 10 through 14. I'm going to read out of the NIV. Let's look at it together. It says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this <clears throat> or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus 
took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward or toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, we're starting off this year in the month of January by giving you several foundational messages that reinforce the central mission of our church, which is to be helping one another keep on taking our next steps toward a deeper relationship with God and with others. That is the mission of our church. We talk about next steps. We talk about reaching up to God, across to our fellow Christians, and out to the world around us. Those are relationships that matter, and in each of them, we're supposed to be taking our next steps. So this idea of next steps, of perpetual movement toward the next immediate thing you can do, that's built into the DNA of our church culture. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes taking your next steps, persevering, sticking at something is not always a good thing, right? I mean, this poor brother in this Far Side cartoon at the Midvale School for the Gifted is going to push until Jesus comes back and not open that door. And so the reason I threw up this silly cartoon is to make this point. Taking next steps is a good way to live your life. Persevering, sticking to it, getting up, but, but really the worthiness, the worthwhileness of next steps really boils down to where those next steps are aimed. Sticking to something that is dumb is not a good thing. Sticking to something that that is not working, that does not have a worthwhile and noble end goal, is not perseverance, it's stubbornness. And when you see someone do it, it drives you crazy. If you're a sports fan, you see a coach consistently calling in running plays when it's clear that that the running back can't find a hole even in his underwear. And you're like, why do you keep calling running plays? Let the QB throw. But for some reason, he's got in his head, we're a running team. And so you see him over and over pounding away at the same dead end. And what do you say as a fan? What's wrong with you? Change it up. Try something new. Your way is not working. And so I want you to know that perseverance is admirable only if it's attached to a goal which is worthwhile, which has an inherent nobility. I want to talk about this passage, and in it, Paul, I think Paul was actually a sportsman, an athlete, because so many times he uses imagery from the world of athletics to make his point. He writes about it as one who understands what it was like. I actually theorize that I think Paul was a pretty pretty good athlete and maybe even a runner. Um, I wake up dressed like those guys from Chariots of Fire every morning. I wish I could actually run one day like they do. I, I, I get inspired by people who are like that. And he uses this metaphor of a foot race to talk about what the Christian life is like and why it's so important to keep pressing on in this race. I want to make two points about this passage that I think are important for us to know. And the first is that the prize matters. The prize matters. If life is a race, that's great. Every one of us is running at different speeds, but we're running towards something. The question is not whether you're moving. Even if you just sit in your couch all day, you're moving towards something because every second, like all the rest of us, your life is advancing one more step towards the end, isn't it? 
You can choose to do nothing, but you're still choosing to do something. That's the nature of life. And so whether you acknowledge that it's a race or not, you're in it, it's moving, it's like being on a conveyor belt. You can't actually sit still in life. One of the reasons I developed insomnia, as many of you know, is because my roommate bought a very large, loud, loud clock from Walmart when we were in college. And he mounted it on the wall right next to my bed, and we were in a bunk bed. And I'd hear this thing tick, tick, tick. And it just made me realize every time that thing ticks, I'm one second closer to death. And that really started to weigh down on me. It was like, then what the heck am I doing in bed? This is a precious second. I'm not going to blow it sleeping. How stupid is that? And so I developed this crazy psychology that sleep is death. I just basically try to work out a life where I can do without it. Now, don't emulate that. That's messed up. But it makes the point that whether you acknowledge it or not, life is advancing. The real question is not whether you're moving, but the real question, the one that defines everything, is what you're moving toward. What do you suppose is the great prize waiting for you at the end of this race? Now, whether you can articulate it or not, Everyone around you that's close to you knows what the answer to that question is for you. It's so obvious. We see it in every choice you make. I've been watching this show called Flashpoint. It's about a SWAT team, I think, in Seattle or someplace. And this guy's married to his job. He loves his team. And so the the opening episode for the first season is he's getting ready to go to work, but his, his wife's parents are having this big 40th anniversary blowout. And uh, she wants him to go, but he's like, but one of my friends on, on the force is retiring. I got to be there. Everyone's going to be there. This is a big deal when he retires. And she goes, well, this is a big deal for my parents too. And he goes, but you don't understand. My squad, it's like, and she goes, you mean it's like family? And she burned him so bad because he's trying to use his family as a way to tell her how much he, but look at what he really thinks about his family. And this is it. Some people run so hard without any real understanding of what they're running for. That guy on public television, as as a fictional character, it was so clear what he lives for, what he's running after, is his work. It's the glory, the intimacy of a SWAT team. Do you know what the prize is that's waiting for you at the end of this race that you're running? In the ancient world, athletes wouldn't run for prize money or for a trophy that's made out of gold. They would run for something that looked a lot like that. It's a wreath, a crown, made out of laurel branches with leaves on it. It's from a flowering plant. And they would just, as you won the race or the competition, the person who's sponsoring the whole games would come and crown your head with a wreath of laurels. Now, if that's what you're really running for... How pathetic, right? You train for a year, you get 10 seconds to run a race, you beat out everyone, and what are you doing it for? Some twigs tied together. Now, obviously, that's not the prize, is it? If you're doing all that training to get a couple branches, hey, buddy, I could save you a lot of time. Go to your backyard with a pair of scissors and go cut. Do you understand what we're saying? The trophy is not actually the prize. It is what stands behind it. What you're really chasing is not an object that says you won, but what you're really chasing is some reality you're longing for, something that's going to fill the big, giant emptiness in your heart. LeBron James, back in 2005, 
the second year of his career, gave this famous quote that everybody just pounded on him for. He said, in the next 15 or 20 years, I hope I'll be the richest man in the world. That's one of my goals. I want to be a billionaire. He was young. At least to his defense, he was young. To be a billionaire, there's 72 billionaires in the city of Dallas alone. So you're going to have to go a little beyond billionaire status to be the richest guy in the world. But this was his stated life goal, to be the first billionaire athlete through salary and endorsements. Now, to his defense, I don't feel that driven to defend LeBron James, but let me at least say this for him. He grew up poor. He grew up abandoned by his father. And so the rest of that quote, which never really gets played out, is I want to make sure that my descendants and their descendants for generations will never have to worry about anything. And so I get where he's coming from. But I just think about a guy who is one of the most gifted athletes to ever play the game. And I, as a Chicago fan, I just say that grudgingly, but, you know, let's just admit it. I mean, you, now we know what it was like in the Jordan years to not be in Chicago. and have to grudgingly admit some other city had a great player. That guy can play basketball. And yet for him to be so gifted by God in a skill, but as he makes a public statement, his goal is, has nothing to do with a gift it has to do with the trophy. I just thought, what a tragedy. But he symbolizes the lostness and confusion that I think has covered an entire generation of Americans. I frankly think that we're not very good at making the distinction between the trophy and the real prize for which we're running. We look at all the little things, the trinkets that tell us you can measure your worth and your success. Look at this, what I have. And it's like you're holding up a trophy saying, look what I'm worth. But what you should be really pointing to is, look at what I've run for and I finished well. It's that thing the trophy stands for, which defines your entire life. And so I want to ask you, <clears throat> what is it that you want? What is it you're after? How will you know when you're old and in your deathbed and you're looking at your loved ones that you can say with honesty, I won. It was worth it. I got one shot on this planet and I didn't waste it. I actually made good on that little journey that I had. What is it that you're running after? And if you have a lot of courage... Don't just ponder it yourself because you will lie through your teeth. Okay? That's just the honest truth. Most of us will lie like crazy when we're asked the question ourselves. If you really want to be honest, you want an honest answer, ask the people closest to you. What do you think is the prize that I am hell-bent on catching? What do you see me dropping everything for and running after? What do you see that when it goes wrong, I get the most devastated? I get the most upset? What is that thing that you think my heart is running for? Paul had no confusion on what he wanted. If you could see the, the entire chapter, in fact, the entire book of Philippians, it crescendos to this moment of clarity where Paul now says, and this is more than just, yeah, I kind of want to know Christ. He's not saying it like that. He's saying with the deepest possible conviction, I know what I ultimately want. You know, when you're at a restaurant and everything on the menu looks good and you have a hard time deciding, have you ever had that? And at some point, though, every, the waitress, look, you can't have 
page three. Okay, just pick something. What do you want? And you've just got to declare it. And in every group of diners, there's always the one person who's the last order. I'm like, I'll have, um, oh, let me see. I'll have, and you're like, just pick something. But then there are other people who the minute they walk in the restaurant, they go, I know what I'm getting. I'm going to get the fish tacos. I don't even, they don't even open the menu. There is such a clarity. They walked in knowing what they're after. They could articulate it without any doubt, and all of their faculties were aimed in one direction. Tim Keller says, it's like the difference between regular light and laser light. One of the big differences is that regular light travels in every possible direction. Laser light is gathered and focused in one direction. So what is that thing for which your whole life is aimed with great intensity of focus? When Paul says, I want to know Christ, he was making a very profound, defining life statement. Now, what's interesting is he also wrote the letter to the Romans, and he said, here's what I want to know about Christ. A couple things. I want to know his resurrection power. And the reason was because he, he understood this, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. That was the promise held out by the resurrection of Christ, is that death cannot conquer us. And because it could not beat Jesus, though those who fall under his power, those who know him and believe in him and place their faith in him, can also have a newness of life. I have never met a person who hasn't said to me at some point, I would love a new life. I think that's why we like New Year's or dread New Year's. We like it because we think maybe this year is the new you. If you go to the iTunes app store, there's a whole section called A Whole New You. We love that idea, reinventing ourselves, starting over, me version 2.0, like the picture I showed you last December. It's almost there, don't worry, getting there. We want to do that, but then we also dread it because we know, ah. I said the same thing last January. But the heart is there, isn't it? I want power for a new life. The life I have is not working for me. I need something better. And so Paul rightly says, that's something I do want to know in Christ, is I want to know him and this power that made him new. But there's another thing which Paul wants, and this is, this is where I understand that what Paul is saying is, I don't just want to know biographical data about Jesus. I don't just want all the benefits. I want to know him at all costs. No matter what, what I want at the end of it all is him, a personal relationship with him. And I know this because look at what he says next. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Who couldn't say that? But then he says also the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. That is not an easy thing to say when you say, I want to really know you. Most of us want to know you in the good times. It gets really uncomfortable when it comes time to suffer. And it's hard enough watching another person suffer. It's really hard getting in there and suffering along with them. It's awkward. It's painful. It's costly. And that's the signal that this is a person who has more than a passing interest in knowing you. Fair-weather friends are plentiful. You know that, right? How many of you have been burned by a fair-weather friend before? Somebody who in all the good times and smiley times is always there, but the minute it gets rough, where are they? Hey, where's all my buddies? Where's all the guys I had a pint with who acted like they knew me, but they really don't want to know me now? 
when I was flush, when I was making money hand over fist in the stock market, when I was picking up the bar tab every other week, they liked me. Where are they now? My bros. Where are they? And the truth is, most of us know what that experience feels like. True love, real friendship and commitment comes from the person who says, (laughs) sucks to be you, but at least you got a a roommate. (laughs) I'm coming. I'm going to go down into that junk with you. That's when you know somebody really wants you, wants to know you and not just be seen around you. I think that's what marks the best love relationships. And if you've ever fallen in love, you know exactly what Paul is describing here. What besides love could explain the way that a man treats a woman he loves? Bending over backwards, changing the way he talks. You know, you can always tell when a guy's talking to his woman. Hello? Oh, hi. Yeah, no, I'm just here with my friend. And all the guys are like, what is that voice? What, what, who is that? How do you explain the way we behave except that what we're saying is something has grabbed me. I love you. And we're even willing to give up the playoff game to go shopping for shoes. It's hard. We hate it, but we'll do it. Why? Why? And ladies, you know that's what you're looking for, right? This guy, he, girl, he went shoe shopping with me during the NFC playoff game. As a keeper. Why do men do it? Because we're showing, we're demonstrating, this is not for me a casual pursuit. It's something that means something to me. I want you at all costs. I want to know you, not just the good times, but I want to know what it's like. Even when you're going through a miserable time, I want to be the one who actually understands what you're feeling, what you're going through. Here's what Paul says later. I don't think I've attained this kind of knowledge of Christ, but I'm pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See, it's easy to read verses 10 and 11 and go, yeah, that's Paul. He wrote half the New Testament. He's a guy who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus face to face. I can't compete with that. And the truth is, when I read verses 10 through 11, when I'm not doing well with the Lord, it's a very oppressive, guilt-producing couple of verses. Uh, here it goes, Paul again. I want to know Christ and the power of his... And I'm like, you holy roller, I, I can't run with you. And the question is, where does that kind of spiritual intensity come from? If you've never experienced it, you've been scratching your head all your life in church, haven't you? Are these people all stupider than me? Are they easily bamboozled? Is there group hypnosis and I'm just the only one immune? What is happening? Some of these people look so into this and you're like, there's nothing to get excited about. Why are you so worked up about this faith, this Christianity thing? And you've wondered all your life, some of you. Where does that spiritual intensity and passion come from? Why do some people seem to have it and I don't? And Paul gives the answer. It is not some virtue he acquired through hard work. But he says, look, the only reason I am pressing on to take hold of Christ is because at one point in my life, Christ reached out and took hold of me. What he's saying is, I, this Christianity thing works differently from every other religion in the world. 
every other religion, you can sign up and become blank. I can become a Muslim. I can become a Hindu. I can become a Buddhist. And the way into those religions is to believe the right things, to say the right words, to do the right actions. And by adherence to these principles and lifestyles, I become one of the members of that religion. Christianity does not work that way at all. And if that's the way you've approached it, no wonder you are scratching your head. Christianity is so different from every other religion in this. To become a Christian is entirely the work of God. You cannot believe your way into salvation. God must grab a hold of the deepest part of you and simply never let go. That may strike you emotionally in in different ways, but here's how you know whether you've slid into a lifestyle and a culture or you have actually met the Lord. Is that even when you contemplate running, something holds you back. Something has grabbed you so that even in the worst of times, you realize you're powerless to leave this one. He has grabbed the deepest part of you and will not let go. That is what makes for the greatest marriages too, isn't it? Everybody has moments where you think, oh, I long for the green pastures and the open horizons of singleness again. If only I could just flush the toilet on this one and start over. Everybody goes through a time when they fantasize about that, but even when you're the most bitter, the most angry, the most, like, I'm treated so unfairly, I'm not appreciated, but then... As you're getting ready to sign the papers, call your lawyer, something deep down grabs hold of you and you can't explain it logically. What's in it for me? Where's the wind for me? And yet something has gotten a hold of your heart. I can tell you that explains my marriage with Jeannie. I love her, but I am powerless to leave her. For some reason, God just grabbed me down there and I can't, I can't conceive of a life without her. That's a mystical thing. I don't pin that on her virtues alone. She's a great wife. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh, I'm a prisoner in my... I love being married to her. But let me tell you something. Even on the days where I stop liking it so much, I am powerless to leave because she has mysteriously, supernaturally gotten a hold of the deepest part of me. And if that doesn't describe the experience you have of knowing Jesus Christ... My news for you is this, what you've experienced as Christianity may actually not be anything more than a belief system and a lifestyle and a culture. And that's why you don't understand why everyone else is so jazzed about it. I believe that Jesus Christ must first grab hold of us before we can have an enduring desire to lay hold of him. And that's why when you hear the words of Paul, it shouldn't produce guilt in us. It should produce a genuine curiosity and a desire. I hear Paul talking about his desire to know God, and I go, well, I feel guilty. The, The right response is not to flail about trying to get that same feeling Paul has. Do you understand that? Because you cannot manufacture that kind of passion simply by trying hard. If you don't feel what he feels, what's missing is this God who, in, who mysteriously grabs a hold of the human soul and will not let go. He latches onto you. He grabs you. That is the entrance into the kingdom of God. 
In fact, Jesus himself used a very curious phrase. He says in Matthew, the kingdom of God is like violence. There is a spiritual ferocity in the way that God lays hold of people so that you know when you're saved. You know, for years, we didn't clearly define who is a leader and who is not at our church. So we'd have these monthly leaders meetings, and people would always come up to me and go, am, am I a leader? Am I supposed to be at that? And I'm like, wow, that's messed up. We need to be clearer about that. Being a Christian is not really such a vague notion. And a big part of how you determine is not just going through the checklist of beliefs. That is very important. I don't want to steer you wrong of doc- clear of doctrine. It's important. But the, the added thing, that dimension you have to know is, did he grab hold of you? Is there something inescapable about the clutches of God on you? Because until that happens, phrases like, I want to know Christ will always be a head scratcher for you. You'll never share in that motive in your heart. Because it isn't start, it's not a journey that starts with you reaching out for and pressing on. It starts with him. What is this prize you're reaching after? And what is driving you to reach after it? And let me give you another um, aspect of this racing metaphor that's important. Paul goes on to say, it's important even after you get clarity on the prize, even after you know why you're running and after whom you're running, you don't ever look back in a race. You don't ever look back. Look what he says. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, whenever you hear somebody say that, that's a key. It's like this is the turning point for him. Here's my main strategy for moving forward in this life. Here's the one thing I do to lay hold of this relationship with Jesus Christ. I forget what is behind, and I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying is even after you're clear on what the prize is, the race will not really be an easy one. As in any good race, there are obstacles to get over both within yourself. Runners who run marathons, I'll never know this, but they talk about a wall that you hit. Where are my runners at? Is, is it true there's a point in the race where you hit this wall and everything you're screaming, just sit down and drink some Gatorade and sleep for about eight weeks? You hit that wall, you just want to quit. And they say if you push through it, then you're going to finish the race. He forgets what is behind and he strains towards what is ahead, knowing that this race will be filled with many reasons to stop running. And he says one of the greatest hindrances for a runner in a race is this obsession with looking backwards. And so he says, never look back in a race. Forget what is behind. Strain towards what is ahead. Because in a race, everything that matters is in front of you, not behind you. There is nothing to be gained as a runner by looking backwards. You might say, oh, well, I've got to see who's catching up. What difference does it make? Can you change the way they run? Can you tell them to slow down because they're breathing down? They're catching up. Guys, give me a break here. Slow it down. Looking back will give you observations over which you have no power and no control. It is information you think you need, but you actually don't require to finish the race well. 
The only thing you need in a race is to, to manage and regulate your own running and to keep your eyes fixed on the prize. And everybody probably saw that YouTube video of that Japanese marathon runner who took the wrong turn. He was clearly in the lead, and he makes the wrong turn. He starts running on the wrong street, and the pace car guy's going, no, no, this way. And he loses the race in the final, like, 300 yards by making the wrong turn. So it's important in a race, the only things that matter are right in front of you. It's the goal you're running after, and it's the very next step you're going to take. And that's really what Paul's talking about. The only things that matter in a race are a clear view of the goal and the very next step you put down on the ground. And what he says is, if you're going to run in a race, listen, make every step count. If you're not going to run to win, what's the point of showing up, really? You know, everybody's crazy about the Bulls lately. And I've been watching the games on TNT. And Stacey King is a much better announcer than he was a player. Just seeing Stacey King brings back all those old frustrating memories of a very well-played player who never showed up on the court. You see him out there like, yeah, all right, give me the ball. You're, like, you're in the NBA. If you're going to play, play. Look like you want to be out there. Look like it matters. And I think that's the heart that Paul sings. If you're going to take another step in a race, why not make it count? He's not saying, and so I forget what is behind and I prance towards what's in front. I take little ginger steps. He goes, I strain. Do you ever see a runner in a close race at the end trying to cut the ribbon at the finish? He's like this. You You guys know this pose, right? the human hood ornament, it's saying it's such a close race, if just sticking out my chest an extra six inches gets me out there in front of the other guy, that's what I'll do, because I'm in a race here. And it's not so much about beating everyone else. We're not going to give you God point averages, you know, your GPA as a Christian. It's not about beating others, but it's saying if I'm running, then my own experience has everything to do with whether I run hard or whether I prance around aimlessly looking for the end. Think about it in terms of an Olympic athlete. You train. This is, these are guys in, in Athens. <clears throat> I don't remember what year that was. Was it 2002? But this is the run of the 100-meter run in the Olympics. And you think about this. You train for four solid years to run one race on one day that lasts just around 10 seconds. If you happen to get the flu that day, you're out of luck for four years, wasted. It is that roll of the dice, really. You've worked so hard. It all boils down to one race. And let me ask you something. Should every step count in that race? Are you warming up or are you running now? And if at the end, like I think I've said this to you guys before, I don't respect any Olympic athlete who is not collapsed on the floor after crossing the finish line in need of an oxygen tank. If you can do victory laps, I'm like, then what did you save that energy for? You should leave it all out on the track. Pour it out so that you're almost about to collapse when you finish. That is respectable to me. And what Paul's saying is, this is the way that our lives should be pursued. If you're going to take a next step, don't take a mincing, useless, worthless step. Take one that's decisive. A half-hearted Lackluster engagement in anything will not profit you in this life. That's just the bottom line truth. Have any of you experienced phenomenal success in something you sort of half did? 
If you did, I want to interview you and write a book about this. It could be the next leadership book. You know, how mediocrity wins. Has anybody out there ever won by trying a little bit? If you did, who knows what you could have attained if you actually tried. I think that it's a general principle that in all of life, without intentionality and commitment, without hard work and this spirit of straining. Do you know that word straining, which Paul uses? It's the same word that's translated in other parts of the Bible as the word persecute. It's a word that, if you can have a visual picture of straining, it is pounding on, it's beating. It's like taking a whip and telling a stubborn donkey, walk, you mule. It's straining, it's pushing. And what he's saying is, this is the heart that should be inside of us, is that we know that in this race, it is so easy to drift away into oblivion. It is so easy to lose ground. And so something from within our hearts must be committed to taking intentional, strong, decisive next steps forward. I know that many of you are trying hard to be a good son or a good daughter, a good student, a good spouse, a good parent. You're trying, you're straining, and I thank you for that. It's a great thing to see people make an effort to be the right kind of person, to live by the right set of morals, to be faithful to the people that mean something. I know many of you are expending a great deal of energy trying hard to be a good person. It is not that kind of strain I'm talking about, though. This is a very specific straining which Paul's addressing. Yes, strain hard at being a decent person. But the straining that obsesses and defines Paul's whole life is a straining hard after God. That is the straining that will matter most for you. And at a practical level, I really mean this. I can back this up with hundreds of hours of conversation with many people I love who are in the midst of a very bad situation, trying so hard to be a good person. And yet while they're straining to be good, their heart is dying. It's withering. I see it. I'm trying so hard, Pastor Dave, to be the, good, the better man. A good husband. I'm trying to be the better friend, the faithful one. I'm trying. And I say, I appreciate your efforts. But the one place you're not straining, where it matters the most, is you are not straining hard after your God. And I know that sounds like a generalization, but it's remarkable to me how many times people in difficult situations, in the storms of life, I ask them, are you walking faithfully with God? Are you chasing after him? Are you spending time, extended periods, in quiet prayer in His Word? And they almost all will say, no. My life is just too much hell to be thinking about stuff like that. I've got too much stress to be chasing after God. He should be chasing after me right now. God knows I'm trying my best. And there's this attitude that arises, and it's not serving them well. In the midst of the storms of life, your straining at being a better person will only go so far. What really carries the day is, are you straining hard after God? Are you looking for Him in the good times? And are you especially looking for Him in the midst of trial? Are you letting His voice speak into your situation? Because if God's voice is shut out, then even... Even if I do the best counseling, I mean, there are times when I'm counseling somebody and I think that advice is so, I got to write it down. I got to write it down. I was on a roll. And yet the next day, no difference. Because if God's voice cannot break in regularly to your life, my voice and everybody else's voice will have no power either. 
The best advice in the world cannot fix a heart that has shut God out. That's just the way it works. So what I'm asking you to focus on is not just, ooh, that's it, my weight loss program this year. Pastor Dave preached about pressing on. Please don't go home applying it that way. I don't care if you gain weight or lose weight. In the end, that's not the most important thing. We all die, okay? So look, try to be fit, but don't apply this wrongly to every pursuit of life. Primarily understand this. What God is calling each of us to this year is to run hard in the pursuit of him. To chase after a relationship with him so that his voice becomes powerful and it can shape the way we experience our lives. That is what we're after. And that's why I get so encouraged, so blessed when I receive emails and text messages from people who I know are going through a lot of strain. And yet what I see in their message is that they're still in the midst of all that trial. They're trying so hard to chase after God. I got an email just yesterday from a friend. He has a very, very high ranking position in the federal government. Um, Very, very high. And So his job is a really, really big pool of stress. Every day, his job creates ulcers for him. On top of that, he's got a wife, three young children, and he is very, very sacrificially serving at his church. That's the perfect storm. That's the kind of life that is so thin, so on the edges and the margins, that if one thing goes wrong, the whole house of cards will collapse. And he knows it. And so what he told me, and listen, this is not me flattering myself, but he, what he said is, I feel like where I am right now, just the, the sermons I'm getting from my own pastor are not enough. I am hungry for God's word because right now I'm just on the edge of a breakdown. And so he's been listening to our sermons from our, our website. In fact, he just listened to the one that my brother preached last Sunday and really got challenged by it. And he just wrote to me to say, I just want you to know that your ministry is having an impact even beyond your church. Your sermons are making a huge difference in my life. Now, the reason I got so encouraged by that was not because he was giving me respect for my preaching skills or anything like that. The reason it gave me such a lift is because I saw a guy who could so easily go, geez, where's the room in my life? Is anyone going to take care? I'm taking care of everything and everybody. Everybody's got demands. And it would be so easy to shut down. And he didn't. This is a guy who is straining hard after God in a circumstance where it would be very easy to shut down and coast. And because of it, I'm confident in this, he will not drift into oblivion. He will remain there in the race, and he will finish as long as he keeps that up. That gave me such a lift. And I really think that the way we run our race determines how we finish. And it is sometimes in the midst of good times that you intentionally run hard after God. That will make the difference when the storms of life hit you and you don't know which way up is. Yesterday I got that very encouraging email, but I also got another very encouraging text message. Many of you know that Benson and Grace, which sad to report, lost their baby over the weekend. And I, I sent out some some emails and text messages just trying to find out how they're doing. And I got a, a text message back from Grace that really moved me. Because I saw in her response that in the midst of this painful life storm, and by the way, just so you don't know, I asked permission to share this. So I don't want you to be like, oh, I'm never telling him anything. I, I asked for permission to share it. 
And what Grace wrote was so evident to me that she was seeing what she needed to see. You know, we see what we're aiming our eyes at, and she was looking for Jesus in the midst of the storm. There's a lot of other things to see, and it's very easy to miss God in the midst of your trials. God doesn't always jump in front and go, no, here I am. Sometimes in a still, small voice, he goes, if you look for me, you're going to see how good I've been to you in this, even in this hardship. But you've got to be looking for me. And in that text message, I saw the heart of someone who is looking for Jesus in the midst of a very, very bad storm. I called to comfort her. The message I got back comforted me. That's just weird, isn't it? But this is the way life works. Those who strain hard after God will find that God is with them when the running goes uphill. And I love the way that Paul summarizes his life in one of his last little writings to his spiritual son, Timothy. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. He says to him, look, I have, imagine saying this, to be able to say this at the end of your life. I have fought the good fight. I have. And I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I don't know what I'm going to be able to say when I'm dying, but I hope I could say that. I hope among the many things I will say to my children and to my friends as I'm dying, I hope I could say that. If I can say that, then it was worth it. I won. I won in the only thing that mattered. Last week, my brother challenged us to think about the trajectory of your life. Where is it headed? Because that's exactly where you're going to end up. And you may think you've got forever to change course. You're like, well, you know, all right, when I'm a little older, when I've made my fortune, I'm going to settle down and look into this God stuff. I can't guarantee that all those tomorrows are waiting for you. I think it's important right now to think about the trajectory of your life. Think about the prize that you're chasing, the real one, not the one you talk about, the real one that you hope will be awarded to you when you finish. What is that prize? I hope for those who love and trust Jesus Christ that at some point he will grab such hold of your heart that you'll be able to say with honesty, no matter what else happens, the one overriding goal of my life is that I want to know this Savior with whom I will spend eternity. I want to become like him. I want to get him. That to me, friends, is a life very well spent. And I hope at the end of your life, you're holding more than a wreath of branches and leaves. Run. Run after Christ hard this year. Be intentional about your spiritual journey this year. And I am begging those of you who have never taken anyone up on that invitation, please, please this year, wake up, wake up and run.
Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.